The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look at the handout there. What the Bible has to say about evangelism, today's topic. You came in, hopefully you got one of these. A stop sign. If you've never seen it, this is just one of the better, more thorough and biblical Bible tracts that I'm aware of. Very helpful. Put that in your purse. If you don't have a purse, put it in your wallet or wherever you want to. And just, if you're a believer, use it as a seed, and we'll talk more about that, how you can. If you didn't get one, there's more on the table that you can have today, one per person, with the intent that you're going to use it and ask God to bless it to get the seed of the Word of God out. Just one tool to make that happen. Before we start and answer these five questions in the outline there on evangelism, the questions are, number one, what is evangelism? Number two, Why should we evangelize? Number three, how do we evangelize? Number four, why don't we evangelize as Christians when we should? And then number five, we'll wrap it up with how can I improve in evangelism? But before we get to those questions and see what the Bible has to say, I do want to do these diagnostic questions again like we did last week. You know those really convicting diagnostic, those self-evaluation questions? Those reflective questions that are good? Help us uh, focus our thoughts on self, in light of God's will, on the things that really matter in life. So there are seven questions I'll start out with. You don't have to write down the answers. Just think in your own heart between you and the Lord and do some self-examination. Scripture says to do that. Examine yourself, says the book of Corinthians. So these are questions that I scrutinized my own life with this week and want to share them with you. So question number one, and these are all relative to evangelism or sharing the gospel. Question number one, do the unbelievers around you who you spend most of the time with each week. So if you have a full-time job somewhere at IBM, I'm talking about the IBMers in your cubicles or Yahoo or Google or wherever you work. People you spend 30, 40, 50 hours with each week, the unbelievers. Or if you're a student, it could be the, you know, the fellow students in your classroom, your teachers. Do the unbelievers around you who you spend the most time with each week know you are a Christian? Do they know? Or are you one of God's secret service undercover agents for the kingdom of God? And you're not going to tell anybody that you're a Christian. And you hide it so well. Uh, Number two, do any of your neighbors where you live know you are a Christian? Whether you're in an apartment complex, house on the left, house on the right. A follow-up scary question is, if they know you're a Christian, what kind of Christian do they think you are? I'm not going to go there. Question number three. When was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? When was the last time specifically you can think you shared about Jesus Christ with an unbeliever? I remember a counseling session talking to a believer. They were an adult, had been saved 11 to 14 years, and we were dealing with other issues in their life. But before I got to that, I just wanted to know about their devotional spiritual life, and I asked him, when was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? And they said, uh, I can't remember. Well, how long have you been a Christian? 14 years. Have you ever shared the gospel with an unbeliever in your 14 years of being a Christian? I, I don't think so. I appreciated the fact they were honest. 14 years, they honestly told me they had never shared the gospel with an unbeliever in 14 years of being an adult believer. It's like, wow. So we talked to you about the importance of that and what a priority is. Well, the next question. Um... 
Number five, uh, we'll skip that one. Have you ever led an unbeliever to Christ? Have you ever had that privilege, that joy? In other words, you harvested what God's been doing in their life and on their heart for a long period of time. I know it, it's rare. It doesn't happen frequently, but it's a joy to do so. Have you ever had that privilege? There's, there's no greater joy. Next question. Were you more bold and zealous in sharing your faith as a new believer than you are now? I am, or I was. I think about when I got saved about 20 some odd years ago in college, and I was all over. I was a nuisance. I was obnoxious. I must have been telling everybody all the time, calling my entire family to repentance and believing in Jesus. And boy, that created a stir and an uproar and got kicked out of the house and all that fun stuff that goes with it. But anyway, but I was definitely more bold. It came more naturally. That is so frequently true. And then the last question How often do you initiate? the topic of Jesus Christ in casual conversation. Sitting around talking to somebody. In casual conversation. I say casual conversation because if you're working at IBM and you're on the clock and you're getting paid for doing work at IBM, you shouldn't be, during work hours, evangelizing and focusing on your ministry because that's poor stewardship and a lousy testimony. And you should be docked and pay if not fired from IBM. Something you need to do on your own free time, whether it's lunch or whatever, within the legitimate parameters and guidelines that they might have. And also, during the hours, you, you can live a godly life and be a testimony, right? By your good works, you're an ethical worker with high standards and unified and a team player and all those other things that lend testimony and weight to the verbal gospel that you might be able to share at times. So, how often do you initiate the topic of conversation of, about Jesus in casual conversation? Or is it always just superficial? Uh, that's an important concept to remember about evangelism and planting seeds that we're going to look at. So those are the diagnostic questions. Let's go ahead and look at uh, these main questions that we want to answer from the Bible that I trust are, are going to help us refocus about the priority of evangelism. This church plant has been in existence for three and a half years plus. I've never preached a sermon solely on evangelizing and sharing the gospel. It's always been on the forefront of my mind from week one. It's come out in different contexts at different times. Last summer we did a series and I did do an entire sermon on the gospel. That was the content of the gospel. So that was interwoven with evangelism. But this is the focus of evangelism. The actual task and method. And the reason we share the gospel or evangelize. So let's go ahead and answer those five questions together from the Bible. You can flip along with me. Or you can just listen carefully. Let's go to question number one. What is evangelism? I know this is basic. This is Christianity 101. Believe it or not, the answer to this is uh, very confusing even among evangelicals and Christians, uh, especially in America. There's confusion about what evangelism is. And I will... The clearest example in my mind is when I was at a, a pre previous church and we had a huge staff meeting and everybody that worked at the church got together for like a four or five hour seminar to talk about evangelism as an entire church staff. And we just went round and round for four or five hours. We couldn't even get out of the locker room or the starting gate because we couldn't agree on what evangelism was. It was very discouraging because I wasn't ready for that. I thought it was like a no-brainer. Everybody knew what it was. And uh, what is evangelism? Well, I'll just give you two basic answers there. Declaring good news to miserable sinners. Well, that's not very nice. Well, I wasn't trying to be mean. I was just trying to be accurate what the Bible says. I know when I was not saved, for 19 years when I did not know Christ, I was miserable. 
As a matter of fact, I didn't even realize how miserable I was until I got saved. And that's what—that's just the terminology of Paul in Ephesians 2 when he describes, he's talking to Christians and he reminds them of what they used to be like. Remember what you were like before you got saved? He says all these things. And one of the things he says, you were with, without hope in the world. You were without hope. To me, you know what? If you don't have hope, you are miserable. Dead in your sins. So that's why I use that terminology. It comes right out of the Bible. So evangelism is declaring good news. Key, good news. Because all would agree we're declaring some kind of news. Not all are agreed about is it good news or not or what the content of the good news is. We're going to talk about that. So it's declaring good news to miserable sinners. By the way, the word evangelism is a compound word of two Greek words. E-U. First two words, that means good. Eulogy. When you say good things about somebody who's passed away. E-U means good. Evangelism. You evangelism comes from angelos, is the second word, angelos, angel, which means messenger. Good message. That's what evangelism is, and that's how we come up with good news from that word. So it's good news. The Gospel, Luke 2, 10, when Christ was born, behold, I bring you good news. There it is, that's the Gospel. It is good news, it's a message of good news. Does it have bad news in it? Well, inherently it does because it's got the truth in it and the good news is to help overcome and conquer the bad news. And the bad news is nothing more than just reality, a legitimate diagnosis of the human heart. Sick with sin, the good news is we have the cure in Jesus Christ. That's why it's good news. Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. What is the good news for today in the city of David? There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is the good news? Jesus. He is good news. Simple as that. Declaring good news to miserable sinners. Also, evangelism is only one part of the Great Commission. It is one part of the Great Commission. Very important. The Great Commission, what's that? Maybe some of you never heard of it. Uh, that's just terminology we use for Matthew 28. One of the last things Jesus said to His disciples while He was on earth before He ascended into heaven and He gave them this great command, this commission, this thing that they were supposed to be preoccupied with doing and fulfilling the rest of their days on earth. And it was not just to those people, it was for the church for all ages. The great commission. It was great because it came from the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what the church needs to be preoccupied with. The great commission. Stay focused. Stay on task. What is the great commission? Matthew 28. Just before He ascended into heaven, Jesus is talking to His disciples and here's the Great Commission. He said, uh, verse 18, Jesus came up and He spoke to His disciples saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. He's the all-authoritative, omniscient God incarnate of the universe. And here's what He said to His disciples. Here's the commission. Here's what the church is supposed to do. Verse 19 in the English, it says, Go. Go. Which is a command. Inherently, go. Literally, while going. While going, therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is the great commission of the church? It's the main task of the church, the main priority of the church. And what is the very essence of the great commission? It's not going. Some people say that. The great task and commission of the church is going or to evangelize. That is not the great commission. Evangelizing is not the great commission. That's why you've got to look closely in verse 19 and 20. The main, there's one verb there. One main verb. It is make disciples. In English, it's two words. In Greek, it is one word. Make disciples. What is the great commission of the church? To make disciples. That's what we do. That is our focus. How do we do it? There's three ways you do it. And they're listed right there. And they're all participles 
in verses 19 and 20, modifying or describing how you make disciples. And they are in logical, sequential, chronological order. Here's how you make disciples. Start by going. That's the beginning of verse 19. That's actually a participle. should be translated while going. That is evangelism. That is part one of the Great Commission. There are three parts to the Great Commission. Point number one, while going. Evangelism is one part and the first part of making disciples. You go out and you share the Gospel. You spread the seed. You get the Word out. That's where it begins. And then God will honor that. And as a result, some people, few people will respond and they will get saved. And that leads you to step two of making disciples. So you're going. Step two is the end of verse 19. Baptizing them. So when somebody gets saved, you identify them. This is formal identification of a believer and somebody who responded to the Gospel. That is step two in the Great Commission. So it's going, evangelizing, and step two is baptizing or formally identifying and bringing them into the church. In the book of Acts, when you got baptized, you joined the church formally. 100% of the time. That's just the model of the early church. So it was for, there was formality to it. People knew who you were. You were committed to a local church. You had a specific uh, leadership, eldership, pastoral leadership. You were submissive to, accountable to, saints you were accountable to. You joined a specific family. That's what that baptism, it is a loaded term. Accountability, assimilation, identification in the local church. That's what that means. So it's not all just about going and having a crusade and give the gospel and everybody that wants to believe in Jesus, raise your hand and you've got 40,000 people, raise your hand and then you leave and you never talk to those people again. There needs to be follow-up. There needs to be baptism. There needs to be identification of who truly came to know Christ, assimilated into the body of Christ where they have a family to identify with so they can be cared for the rest of their days. It's not just pulling them out of the fire. Oh, okay, got you out of the fire. Plop, throw them on the ground. See you later. No, it's care. Ongoing care out of the fire. They have wounds. They have burns. They need to be nurtured. They need to be cared for all of their days. So, the Great Commission is making disciples. Step one, baptizing. Step, I mean, uh, going or evangelizing. Step two is baptizing, identifying. And then step number three in making disciples after, they've, after you've gone, they heard the Gospel, they responded, they got saved, you identified them, they were baptized, they're in the local church, they are one of yours, they have an identifiable leadership and a body. Then step three is verse 20, teaching them. Present tense, ongoing, participle. Continue to teach the believer all the days of their life everything that Jesus has given us to teach them, which is in Scripture, which you will never exhaust in this lifetime. It is an ongoing life long process. This is an, uh, synonymous with discipling a believer, mentoring a believer all of their days. So that's the Great Commission. To make disciples, and you do it three ways. By evangelizing, by going. Baptizing, by identifying and securing into the body. And then three, we disciple, edify, teach, equip, encourage, mentor Christians all their days. It's not all just about getting them saved. I'll never forget a fellow Bible teacher that I used to teach with children. He was much older than me and been a Christian a long, long time and he just kept telling me this was his belief. He just said, it just, let's just get them saved. That's all that matters. That's my philosophy. Let's just get them saved. At, at least they're going to heaven. At least they're not going to hell. In other words, he was saying he, didn't, he wasn't really big on edification, mentoring, discipling. That didn't matter. We got him out of the fire. Well, then you're neglecting two-thirds of the Great Commission as Jesus gave it. It's very important. That's why at GBF here, we make a major priority of teaching. Well, actually, of baptizing, identifying into the local church, but then the ongoing process, the never-ending process of discipling, edifying, accountability, teaching, mentoring. We all need that. 
We all do. So that's what I meant when I said evangelism is only one part of the Great Commission, but a very important part. So that is evangelism. Declaring good news to miserable sinners, one part of the Great Commission. That's what the church is supposed to be about. Question number two. Why should we evangelize? Why should we evangelize? Well, very simply, literally, it's a command. It is a command from Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's the Lord of the church. He's the creator of the church. He's the boss of the church. He's the judge of the church. What He says goes about the church. We can't contextualize things. That means just, well, let's, let's change things. Let's not really do what the Bible said in the book of Acts. Let's change. Let's look around in our society and see what, not only what we want to do, yeah, but what people want. And let's give them that. No, let's not do that. That's horrible. Let's do what Jesus said to do. Very simple. Let's just follow orders of the King. His church. I will build my church, Jesus said. Makes it simple, doesn't it? His church. He will build it. Let's do it. His way and evangelism is a basic command from Jesus Christ. It is a command. Uh, Mark 16, just one example of many verses where Jesus got His disciples before He ascended into heaven and left and He said to them, go. That's evangelism. Go. Go, go, go. Go where? Go into all the world. Go into the unsaved world. Go among unbelievers. Go. It's a command we're obligated to. It's not an option. Go into all the world and preach the Gospel. That is evangelism. It's a command. I could have quoted out of Luke 24. I could have quoted out of Matthew 28 again. I could have quoted out of Acts chapter 1. And on and on it goes. This was a basic command of the church. And this isn't just for the apostles. This is for all believers. I could have quoted out of Philippians. Same thing. Chapter 2. We're, we're lights in a perverse generation. And lights shine for Jesus is what He says. You are the light of the world, Jesus said to the multitudes who believed in Him. Shining, reflecting. That's evangelism. Speaking out, living before unbelievers so that they might glorify the God of heaven in the words of Matthew. This is a command from Jesus Christ. It is not an option. So how in the world somebody can be saved for 14 years and then say, well, I don't think I've ever shared the Gospel with anybody. Well, maybe out of ignorance. Do you realize this is a basic fundamental command of Jesus Christ of why He left you here on the earth? It is. It's a command. So we should obey. What else? Why should we evangelize? It's a command. Uh, it is the one thing we cannot do in heaven. Isn't that amazing? If you think about it, when we get to heaven, everybody's perfect. And what we can do here, we can worship here on earth and we can worship also in heaven, right? Actually, our worship's going to be even purer in heaven. We can have fellowship with the saints here, but we can also have fellowship in heaven. The one thing that we cannot do in heaven in terms of spiritual ministry that is such a priority is evangelize and tell people how to get saved because everybody in heaven is already saved and know Jesus. they will know Jesus Christ personally. It's amazing. So that's quite sobering and that becomes a major motivation of sharing the Gospel, being an evangelist because the time is short. There needs to be a sense of urgency because we cannot do this. Uh, you know, Hebrews 9 is clear. It is appointed to men and women to die once and then immediately the judgment. It is over. There's no opportunities for believing the Gospel after you die, contrary to what some religions or faiths say. You die, that's it. Judgment. Uh, Revelation 21, the verse I put down there, talking about what the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal heaven is going to be like and how all evil is banished. A glorious place. Uh, Revelation 21.4 God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. No longer any sadness, mourning. No longer crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he goes on of what heaven is like. Verse 8, but for the cowardly. This is talking about people. These are unregenerate unbelievers to the core. This is speaking of their very unchanged, unredeemed nature of who they are. The cowardly. 
the unbelieving, there it is, unbelievers are not going to be in heaven. The abominable and murderers, immoral persons and sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, which is eternal hell. They will not be in heaven. It's over. Too late. It is sobering, but it's a great motivator. Evangelism is the one thing we can do now that we can't do in heaven. So we do evangelism because it's a command, because we can't do it in heaven. Then number three, why do we evangelize as believers? So that people can be saved. People can be saved. Did you know that people cannot get saved without hearing the gospel? This is a controversial issue in the Christian world here in America. People are writing books and dialoguing and debating about this. Because there are plenty of evangelical Christians saying, no, you can get saved without hearing the gospel. You can get saved without hearing about Jesus. Really. More and more people are saying that. That's, that's frightening. That is scary. It goes totally against Scripture. I want to look at Romans 10 because Paul said clearly, no, you can't. Jesus Himself said it in John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father in heaven except through Me. Acts 4.12, same thing. The only name upon which people can call upon and believe in is the name of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But Romans 10, Paul is clear about this. You can't be saved without hearing the Gospel and believing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to his argument in Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 9. Uh, he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you believe, you know, you know Jesus, you believe in Him, you've heard about Him, you believe the right thing about Him. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's the gospel. You get saved by believing the gospel. Is what Paul's saying. The person, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Verse ten: For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, salvation, forgiveness of sin. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Scripture says, whoever believes in him, God will not be disappointed. And then he goes on in verse 12, says it doesn't matter your ethnicity, whether you're a Jew, a Greek, a Gentile. If you believe on Christ, you can be saved. Verse 13 says the same thing. Whoever, man, woman, child, regardless of your ethnicity, you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand the right things about him and yourself, you will be saved. But then he says this, but how then shall sinners or people or they call upon the one whom they have not believed? You can't call upon Jesus if you haven't heard about Jesus and heard the right things about Jesus. It's not just believe in God. That's not good enough. So he's saying you've got to believe in Jesus to be saved. Then he goes on with another rhetorical question. And how shall sinners or unbelievers, how shall they believe in Him, Jesus, whom they have not heard? So he's saying they've got to hear about Jesus to believe in Him to be saved. And he gets more specific. And how shall they hear about Jesus without a preacher? We must preach Christ. You can't get saved without hearing the Gospel message preached about Jesus Christ. Verse 15, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So that's his argument. can't happen. You cannot be saved to become a Christian apart from hearing the specific Gospel of Jesus Christ. The complete Gospel. And we can. God has sovereignly chosen to use us, weak vessels, to be a part of the salvation process by spreading the Gospel message to the world. It's a wonderful privilege. It's one of the highest stewardship and privilege responsibilities we have as Christians. We get the Word out so that God can work on hearts that they might be saved. So, those are three good reasons why we should evangelize. Let's go on to question number three. How do we evangelize? This is the tricky part. Or this is the most challenging part. Because there's extremes. Like when I first got saved and I was age 19... 
I admit, I was overly zealous. I was obnoxious. I was argumentative. I was loud. I'm so glad I'm not like that anymore. But anyway, wait, you're laughing. That hurts my feelings. But anyway, so then now, what is it, 24 years later and I've gone to the other extreme. It's like, well, yeah, I've toned it down a little bit and don't step on people's toes as frequently, but I'm also not as passionate about sharing Christ anymore. That's sad. It's actually pathetic. So that would be self-evaluation of me. Uh, so there is a balance. We've always got to stay in balance. Stay in the Word. Stay in prayer. God will help keep us in balance. So that's the trick. So how do we evangelize? I, I actually gave you A, B, C, D, and then I'm going to add an E last minute here. Uh, how do we evangelize? Uh, letter A, very important. We need to start by being empowered by the Spirit and prayer. It cannot be doing works in our own flesh. It's got to be Spirit-energized, Spirit-empowered, and spirit Led. The Old Testament said the same thing. Not by might, but by my power, says the Lord. And God, what He meant was you do ministry through God and His Spirit as the Spirit of God enables you to serve on behalf of God. It is not in the flesh. It's not with your wisdom. It's not with your education. It's not with your ingenuity and skills. We are dependent upon God and first and foremost the Spirit of God that lives inside of every believer. That is the launching pad for true, biblical, powerful evangelism. Jesus said this clearly in Acts chapter 1 to His disciples as He was preparing them. They were ready to go, chomping at the bits. And He said, no, be patient. Wait. Wait. Two main things He was emphasizing. Wait till the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you so you will be prepared to do it. And also wait and pray. Seek God's face. Seek His wisdom. Don't go out in the flesh. And they did. And so Jesus said it this way, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit of God living in them and that is our resident power. That enables us supernaturally to evangelize on behalf of God. You can't do it without the Spirit of God. So we need the Holy Spirit. We also need prayer. We're going to look more about prayer a little later on. So it starts there. It begins with God and His empowerment. Waiting on Him. Waiting on His leading. Relying on Him. Next point. How do we evangelize? B. By infiltrating the world. Infiltrating the world. Out of the 19 points I want to share with you on evangelizing, I circle this one the most because I think this is one of the most vital in terms of the Christian world today and actually the uh, competing philosophies of how to do church today. Whether it's church growth, the emerging church, traditional church, whatever you want to call it, all these competing philosophies, I think this one speaks to the heart and the matter of what a church is to be and what God's people are supposed to be in the world. When it comes to evangelism, God's pattern, His command... What we see in the book of Acts and the Apostles is we need to be infiltrating the world, penetrating the world of unbelievers, going to them, not having them come to us. And that's a huge difference between... I've served at both churches in terms of having a different philosophy about evangelize. Because it is very common for many American churches, their philosophy of evangelism is, well, that's what the church exists for on Sunday. The main reason we have a worship or a service is to invite unbelievers here. So that they will hear truth and hopefully get saved. Well, it's good. We want unbelievers to be saved. But when that dictates everything you do at church on the Lord's Day is wrong because it lacks balance and it goes against what the model of Scripture is. And especially in the book of Acts. And even what the Bible has to say about how to evangelize. Every verse that I could find on evangelism, it's go, go, go. Not sit there in your holy huddle where it's comfortable in your religious sanctuary like the, and then tell the unbelievers to come to you. How convenient, right? And actually, how cowardly. I don't want to go into the world. I don't want to go knocking on 
my next-door neighbor's door with some cookies and introduce myself, they might find out I'm a Christian. But So it is totally much more convenient to be in your church where you're secure and you're comfortable and then tell all the unbelievers to come to you and they can sit there and then you have the platform to tell them about Jesus. That is not God's way. It, God's way for evangelism it is infiltrating. Go, go, go. I put some verses down there for you. Luke 24, 46-47, Jesus said to His disciples, Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. That means everywhere. Everybody, and that complements Mark 16 and Matthew 28 where he said point blank, go into all the world. Go, not sit there and stay. Infiltrate, penetrate, scatter. This goes back to Genesis chapter 1. God created Adam and Eve. First thing he said, go. Populate, infiltrate the world. They blew it, they sinned. God tries it again. Genesis chapter 9. Populate, go, scatter, fill the world, infiltrate. The world blew it again because they said, no, we're not going to scatter. We're going to build a monument to ourselves and call it the Tower of Babel. So it goes against man's very nature to do what God said. Go, scatter, penetrate, infiltrate throughout the world. This goes to the heart and soul of church philosophy, evangelism philosophy, and what God has designed and ordained. Simply put, well, why, what are we supposed to be doing on Sunday? When we gather with the Lord's people, what are our priorities? Should it be evangelism, evangelism, evangelism? No, it shouldn't. It should be Acts chapter 2 where it says the saints came together, the believers gathered together on a continual ongoing basis doing basically four things. Listening to the apostles' doctrine, having fellowship with each other, breaking bread together, that's the ordinances, praising God, and prayer. That's actually five things. That's what the church should be doing on a Sunday morning as they gather together. So you gather for worship and edification. You scatter for evangelism. It's really that simple. Because that's the model of the New Testament. But this flies in the face of much church philosophy today. So we need to infiltrate, go scatter, go out. I know it can be scary, can be frightening. Jesus knows this. He gives us encouraging words to help us in that regard. That's how we evangelize. Empowered by the Spirit, infiltrating the world. Letter C. Preaching the gospel. Two things I want to say about this. Preaching. Okay, the Greek word is very specific. It means to proclaim. Authoritatively proclaim a declaration given from on a high. That's what the word means. This is not a conversation. It is not a give and take dialogue. Oh, well, what do you think? Well, let me tell you what I think. Well, what do you think? Oh, that's kind of, let's mix them together. No. Preach the gospel is a one-way declaration. It is a herald proclaiming authoritatively on behalf of the God of the universe. Here is truth and you need to heed it. Preaching the gospel. That's what we do. We preach the gospel. We preach and we teach the gospel. So there's a lot of things inherent in this word preaching the gospel. That's what Jesus did. Mark chapter 1 introduces Jesus' ministry at the very beginning. And it says, and it characterizes His entire ministry in one summary statement. It says, Jesus came... Teaching and preaching the gospel, Mark 1, 14 and 15. That's what he did. Same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul summarized his ministry and he said, I, didn't, I wasn't ordained of God to baptize anybody. And I'm thankful I didn't. God ordained me to be a preacher and a teacher and to preach the gospel. So we preach the gospel. Preach also means it is verbal. We need to speak up. I know that's also scary. I remember one pastor saying that many Christians, when it comes to evangelism, are like the Arctic River. They're frozen over at the mouth. Mm, yeah, that's true. Times. So we need to speak. It's not just, well, I've never said anything about Jesus in 15 years, but they've seen my gospel life. 
Well, it's good that you're living holy. There is some merit to that, but they cannot be saved unless they hear the truth articulated. It has to be verbal. That's the way God gave it. It's got to be spoken. You've got to speak up. You've got to preach. You've got to speak. It's got to be the spoken word. So, emphasis there. We've got to preach the Gospel. This is where, when I was at that you know, that all-day seminar about what is evangelism, we couldn't get out of the gate because we disagreed. And then here was the disagreement. Is the disagreement was on what is evangelism. And so, there was me and a couple others saying, well, evangelism is when you actually tell unbelievers about Jesus and the Gospel. And... There are others who are disagreeing with saying, well, that's no, that's not really evangelism. Uh, evangelism is when you bring unbelievers to church. That's it. When you bring unbelievers to church. And, that was, and I even had some probing questions. Well, what if, they, so what if they never hear about Jesus? Well, at least you brought them to church. Well, that's not evangelism. Well, yeah, it is. Well, no, it's not. Evangelism is telling unbelievers about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's got to be verbal. And it's infiltrating the world. So that's how simple the disagreement was. But anyway, you've got to preach the gospel. The other thing is, it's not—it's the gospel. The gospel is specific content. It is good news, and it is good news about Jesus Christ. So it's got to be real specific. Stay focused. Don't lose track. This is where many Christians get distracted by other things. And when they're talking with unbelievers, they get pulled in, uh, unbeknownst to them, in a subtle kind of way, when the unbeliever wants to deviate and not talk about the gospel, but talk about other controversial things where they have a higher ground in the dialogue. Like they're a scientist and they want to talk about, well, evolution. And he's got a Ph.D. in physics or whatever. And he can run circles around the average lay Christian on science and make you look stupid. And he's gotten you off the topic of talking about Jesus Christ. Don't let them do that. Stay on focus. Talk about Jesus. It's what the apostles did. It's what Jesus did. Matthew 16, Jesus asked them, Who do men say that I am? That is the critical question. That's what we want to talk about. So we preach the Gospel. It's all about Jesus, who He is, His life, His death, His resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 sums it up. This is the Gospel. It's about Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His burial, His death on behalf of sinners. He died for sin. You must talk about sin when you preach the Gospel. I'll never forget when I was in college. We had the uh, youth, for, uh, youth with a Mission president addressing all these collegiate Christians on how to share the Gospel with unbelievers. And the first thing he said, I'll never forget it. This is over 20 years ago. Whatever you do when you're talking to an unbeliever, evangelizing, don't tell them about hell. And I'm like, whoa, I was a brand new Christian. I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. That seems like kind of basic because that's what we're getting saved from. That's the good news, isn't it? God can save you from hell. That's the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus, the Savior, can save... Well, because you don't want to manipulate and scare them or create unnecessary fear. Well, why not? It's a reality. If you die apart from Christ, you spend an eternity in hell. That is very frightening. Let me tell you some good news. Jesus Christ can save you from hell. That is good news. One of my best friends, he's a pastor now, so he's got to be close to 30-ish, if not older than that. His testimony is clear in his mind. It is vivid when he gives his testimony. He got saved on a Wednesday during VBS week when he was five years old when whoever the... Bible teacher of the day was lady and she talked about hell and he got scared to death. He did not want to go to hell. He went to the bathroom at VBS and prayed, Jesus, save me from hell! And he got saved in the bathroom. Age five. He's sticking to that story. It's like, yeah, you should mention hell. It's a reality. Jesus can save you from hell. We preach the Gospel, the good news about Christ and why He died and what He can save you from. He can save you from your own sin, from hell, from death, from Satan, from the world. That's why He died. From God's wrath. 
that's the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. Uh, D. How else do we evangelize? Powered by the Spirit, infiltrate the world, preaching, speaking up the gospel about Jesus. And you can do it by planting and watering seeds. This is a recurrent theme in the New Testament that the gospel message and the truth about Jesus is a spiritual seed. And the idea of how many seeds can you plant? Well, you can plant as many seeds as you want, right? You just spread them all around. Zillions of them if you want to. And that's the imagery that God wants us to have as we share the gospel. You can tell anybody you want to about Jesus. little seed here, a little seed there. You're just planting seeds all over. This is very encouraging. You're just responsible for sharing the truth about Christ. You are not. I am not responsible for changing a person's heart. We are not responsible for actually regenerating a soul. We, we can't control people's unbelief or their belief. That is out of our hands. Salvation is in the sovereign God's hands. So it's very easy. We can just be seed planters. And that's what Scripture says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.6, planting and watering seeds, he said, I planted, I the Apostle Paul, I planted the seeds of the Gospel. And then my partner, Apollos, came along at times and he, he watered the seed that I planted. He nurtured, he backed up, he augmented what I said about Christ. He filled in the gaps. He prayed. He was a testimony. It was a joint effort. Evangelism is a process. And God can use a lot of different believers over a long period of time to get the Gospel out time and time again and keep reinforcing it in the heart and the mind of an unbeliever. So it's just planting seeds. In other words, you don't have to give a full one-hour Gospel comprehensive disputation every time you talk with an unbeliever and think that if you didn't, that it was a waste of time. It could have been maybe a 60-second conversation and you just told them the most poignant thing they needed to hear about Christ in that conversation. Whether they were distressed and you say, Jesus Christ can impart joy if you knew Him personally. At least you're making them think and you focused it on Christ. That's planting a seed of truth relative to the Gospel. So this can relieve a lot of anxiety on our part. It's just a little bit here, a little bit there. We always want to give a complete Gospel and always have it focused on Christ. But it doesn't always have to be prolonged. And, you're also, and you don't have to be worrying about always harvesting. If you didn't pray with them to receive Christ that day, your evangelism was not a failure, right? Because God's Word is efficacious and continually working in the hearts of people. His Word never comes back void, says the book of Isaiah. So it's planting and watering seeds wherever you go if you can. Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Christian Appleseed. And then finally, letter E. What else can we do to evangelize? Start where you are. This is practical. Start in your own backyard. Start with your family. And then when they've all heard the Gospel and they don't like you anymore, okay, leave them alone. Pray for them. Be nice to them. Be a good testimony. You don't need to keep hammering it down their throat for 23 years. I know that from experience. They got the Gospel. Wait on God's timing. Start where you are. Start with your immediate friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors. Start in your own backyard. That's Acts chapter 1. Jesus said, go be my witnesses, but start in Jerusalem. That was where they are. Then when you've done that area, then go out to Judea. Then when you've conquered that area, spread the seed out to Samaria. Then when you've done that, then spread out to the uttermost parts of the world. This is very practical for us as Christians. Some Christians want to talk about being a missionary on the other side of the world. And my first question is, does your next door neighbor know you're a Christian and have you told them about Christ? Your next door neighbor. Your mailman. The waitress that you see at the restaurant you frequent. Because if you're not going to tell the people in your own backyard, why would you tell somebody on the other side of the world? It doesn't make sense. Jesus said start in your own backyard where you are. Very practical. So let's go on to the next question. Question number four. Why don't we evangelize? There's a lot of reasons. 
probably the number one reason from my experience talking with people and just knowing my own heart is fear. Fear. The fear of man. We're afraid of how people will react. We're afraid we're going to lose friendships. We are afraid we'll be ostracized. Sometimes it's fear of physical reprisal or reaction on the part of people. Fear, number one reason. And that's why if you want to do devotional reading this week on evangelism, I would recommend chapter 10 of Matthew, the entire chapter, because that's what the whole chapter is about as Jesus is training His 12 apostles on evangelism. Many practical principles there. And He deals with one of the main issues is fear. Several times throughout the chapter, He says, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And there is reason to fear because Jesus says to His apostles as they're about to go out and evangelize in Matthew 10, He says... Um, Verse 14, and whoever does not receive you, so go out, infiltrate, penetrate among people you don't even know. House to house, door to door, in the cities. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Some people are going to reject you. And he says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. People are going to be mean. He's aware of that. There's reason to fear. Send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocents. Innocent as doves. Some people may even deliver you up or arrest you for your faith. Verse 19. Verse 22. You will be hated by Me. I mean, you will be hated by them on account of Me. People will hate you because you're a Christian. Here's another practical tactic on Jesus' part in evangelism. But whenever they persecute you in the city, flee! Run! Hey, there's an option. Why not? Whenever they persecute you in the city, flee to the next city. So, chapter... 10 is just beautiful in terms of dealing with fear and and Jesus realizes it's a legitimate reality and possibility. We've got to overcome our fear. Why don't we evangelize fear? Also apathy. And I've referred to this already. Many of us have lost our zeal. Ho-hum. Jesus didn't return like He was supposed to 20 years ago. And in Revelation 3.2, we saw that church that was rebuked by Jesus and He told them to wake up. Wake up, you're asleep. You are lethargic. You are apathetic. Stir up the zeal you once had in the passion for Christ. So it's apathy. Why else don't we evangelize? No compassion. We don't love people. We've lost our love for people. 1 John 3.18 talks about loving people. Not just loving them with your tongue and your words, but loving them with actions and deeds. And even refers to the gut. Does your gut hurt for people? Because of your compassion and hurt for people. Do you love people? If you don't love people, you're not going to evangelize. Because you don't care about them. You don't care about their soul. And we've got to ask God to soften our hearts and give us His care, love and concern and compassion for unbelievers and people. God has to do it. James chapter 2 says, don't have show partiality. Somebody comes into your assembly and one's dressed nice and they're probably a big giver in the offering and the other one dressed like a slob off the street probably won't give anything in the offering. Don't be partial and show greater care and concern for the one you know you're going to get something. His whole point is there is to don't be prejudiced. Love every human made in God's image. We need compassion. Uh, D, frustration. We don't evangelize because we get frustrated. It's like me. I, I have a huge family. They were all unbelievers. And I shared the Gospel with them and kept sharing and kept sharing and kept sharing. For five years and nobody got saved. I got frustrated. I give up. Well, don't do that. Jesus said, you go to somebody, you share, they reject the message, you shake the dust off your feet, you turn around and you go to somebody else. And if they reject it, you go to somebody else. Jesus understands that. People will reject, at least initially. 
So don't be banging your head up against the wall. Choose another alternative. Don't get frustrated. Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. What's precious? They don't want to hear it? Then don't tell it to them. Go to somebody who's going to appreciate it and be teachable. Share it with them. Frustration. Then the, final, the other one I wanted to add on there is just wrong theology. You know, the Bible teaches election. God it's, you know, puts His love on people before the foundation of the world. Some people use that as legitimacy to not share the Gospel and evangelize. Well, I don't need to. God's going to save them anyway. That's hyper-Calvinism, it's called. That is bad. I believe in election. I'm a Calvinist, but I also believe in God's sovereignty. Somehow, mysteriously, He has chosen to use us human beings as we share the Gospel to save people. Can't explain it, but that's what I see in Scripture. So don't let your bad theology keep you from sharing the Gospel wherever you go. And then finally, last question. How can I improve in evangelism? Just some real simple things. Letter A is just pray. Pray, God, soften my heart. Create a love for people in my heart. Help me overcome fear. Let me rely upon You and energizing me and empower me with the Spirit of God that lives inside of me. You've got to pray and you've got to pray very specifically. Who was the boldest Christian that ever lived? Probably the Apostle Paul, if not Peter. And here's Ephesians 6.19. Paul is pleading with the Christians at Ephesus, pray for me. What are you asking for prayer for, Paul? that I will open my mouth to speak the Gospel. Well, what specifically do you want us to pray for? And two times he says, pray for boldness. I'm a sissy! That's amazing. The Apostle Paul would pray for boldness. So he was human. He struggled with cowardice, fear, compromise. And God answered his prayer. He's the boldest evangelist we've ever known. God answered that prayer. So pray very specifically. Also, this will help. Many. How can I improve? Give your testimony. Give your testimony. That's John 9.25. It's the blind guy. Jesus healed some blind guy. And the blind guy didn't know really what was going on, but all he knew was he used to be blind and now he can see and he was really happy about it. And this guy over there, I think his name is Jesus, did it. And that was his testimony. He was under the inquisition of the Pharisees. And that his testimony was, all I know is I was blind and now I see and Jesus did it. And you can do the same thing. You can do that in any conversation. You're talking about the NBA championship and the Lakers or the latest uh, golf tournament or the cooking show you saw on television and then the next sentence you can just tell them, you know what, I used to be blind and now I can see. It's very simple. Well, what are you talking about? And then boom! That's what Franklin Graham does. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be ready, Christian. Always be ready. Wherever you are, wherever you go, to give an answer about the hope that is in you. Our hope is in Christ. That's what you tell them about. And always be ready to do it. You can share your hope of how Jesus saved you personally to anybody, regardless of how educated they are, how intimidating they are. You could sit down with the most renowned, educated atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, and you could run circles around them by telling them about the hope that is in you. And you know what? They couldn't have a rebuttal. And the power of God and the message of Christ and the Gospel would pierce their conscience even unbeknownst to them, bringing either condemnation and judgment or softening and repentance. It's the power of the Gospel. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power is in the content of the message of the Gospel, not in our delivery. Isn't that encouraging? Amen. And then finally, how can I improve in my evangelism? Diversify. Don't do the same thing all the time, especially if it doesn't seem to work. Quit talking to your relatives if they've had it. They're saying, leave me alone. Follow their advice. Leave them alone. 
Go talk to somebody else. Diversify. Other people. Other venues. Do it different ways. Take a good Bible track. Go to a restaurant. Leave it with a tip. Leave it with a huge tip. They will read it. They will hear the Word of God. They will hear the Gospel. Pray for that person that you gave that track to. Talk to your neighbors. Plant seeds. Water seeds. Diversify. Get involved with little kids. Man, they're teachable. They'll listen. They want to hear about being saved from hell and Satan and death. Join Awana. Week by week. Get to interact with little kids one-on-one. Just, I had the joy of doing that two years ago at the Valley Christian Awana program. And I had five little kindergarten boys. And one of them, his parents were not Christians. They'd never been to a church. They just dropped him off their plop. This must be good. It's religious. So for nine months, I had this little kindergarten five-year-old boy. You ever heard of the book of Genesis? No. You ever heard of Adam? No. Wow. Let me tell you about him. Got to tell them the truth. Children, diversify. Formal, informal. Just be committed. And then I'll, conc- I'll close with this. And you can do this with anybody, like giving your testimony. Cut to the chase. It's not about moralism or socialism or, or good works or uh, all that stuff. Cut to the chase. Just two basic questions you can ask anybody, and that will reveal where they are at. And they will probably get uncomfortable, but it will force the issue. Ask them, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Because that's what Jesus did. What, who do people say that I am? What do you think about Jesus? And then another pen, a powerful question is, where will you go when you die? Just make some face reality, right? And then also just good resources like The Way of the Master and Kirk Cameron. And he just uses these very basic, penetrating, pertinent questions that force people to think about the ultimate realities in life. And then he's got inroads for the presentation of the life-changing gospel. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to help us become more effective evangelists all for His glory and our, our good. Father, thank You for uh, this day, the Lord's Day. Thank You for the church, the wisdom of You, Lord Jesus Christ, in building Your church, taking the initiative to build it as You said, the great promise. Thank You for every soul that has been saved in our midst today. And You use the goodness of the Gospel message to do it. God, empower us with Your Holy Spirit. Remind us of the importance of prayer. Give us a sense of urgency that we may have lost or at times we lose. And may we consider every human being made in the image of God as very valuable, sacred, and in need of a life-changing message. And we just pray that You'd make us a more evangelistic church all for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.